Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com, dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be, helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. We will make many mistakes. We'll experiment a lot and explore on both sides of that continuum, inhabiting our needs personally too much, inhabiting our needs not enough. And it's through the feedback that we get from people and from life that we find that middle way that is actually the true nature of things. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from Clear and Open. Humans have the unique ability to live out of harmony with their own nature. We have free will, which allows us to deny our own needs, even though we can't escape the consequences that come along with that. The downsides of repressing our own needs can come out in the form of resentment, anger, passive aggression, or things like cancer. This becomes even more difficult to manage when we realize that we don't often know what's good for us. So how do we find it? Trial and error, mostly, and along with that, deep introspection. I do weekly member webcasts. I teach four courses online a year. I do mentorship. I work one-on-one, mostly with business leaders. It's all at clearandopen.com because it's my truth that with the right tools, anyone can eliminate people, money, and time problems holding them back in business. I've never seen a problem that I couldn't help with, and I want to share parts of these webcasts to help you too. So if you're enjoying the show, I'd love your feedback. You can leave a review. I would appreciate that. That helps other people find this. And, you know, I want to say also, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, and I know a few people, they told me they've actually listened to every single episode, you know, all 300 and something at the time. If if you're following the podcast that deeply, I really want to invite you to consider becoming a member um, because it's probably what you need. (laughs) You know, if you're really that into what is being taught here and I haven't scared you off or alienated you a long time ago, consider becoming a member. Try it for a month. It's just 129 bucks. And the the value, I think, is off the charts. I purposely keep it very affordable. Uh, I would love to have you. Uh, As the day I'm recording this, it's uh, January 14th as I record this. We're a couple weeks into Embodied Virtues and Values. Embodied Values and Virtues, rather. Uh, That course is, you can still sneak in. It's not too late. And um, next course will begin uh, in April to be announced. Hope to see you soon. Okay. Thanks for listening. Let's start the show. And this is how the self versus other paradigm actually creates more suffering. And this is why caretaking doesn't work. Because it's easy to observe that when you repress your own needs and serve another, There's a kind of law of conservation of needs that happens. It can't be done. You cannot repress your own needs. If they're real needs, if they're real, healthy, self-interested needs, they can't just disappear because they're not made up. They have actual substance to them. So 
that can show up in different ways. Um, resentment over a period of time. If you keep repressing your own needs and serving another, it stores up and creates resentment, which can then explode occasionally in anger. Um, and it can also come out via passive aggression. That's one way for that resentment to come out. It can get stored so deeply inside of us that it can create disease like cancer. And cancer is the creating of more cells, unnatural, unhealthy cells in the body to hold more of what is not being expressed, not being moved. So we're able to compensate in many different ways because we have the free will, interestingly, we have the free will to be able to deny our own needs. But we do not have the ability to escape the consequences of that. And that's so we learn. That's, that's how it is human beings learn. That's what makes us different than Squirrels and monkeys and birds, they're not learning life lessons in the same way because they don't appear to have the ability to depart from the natural way of things like we do. A squirrel does not, so far anyway, have the ability to say, you know what, these nuts are boring. I'm going to live on blue raspberry Slurpees instead. That's going to be my food source. And I'm going to hang outside the 7-Eleven and I'm just going to live on blue raspberry Slurpees. And a squirrel who tried to do that, you can imagine that squirrel's life would get pretty messed up. Probably the sugar would be really damaging for them. Maybe it's hard for them to get the blue raspberry Slurpees. It would go against their nature. But the squirrel does not have the ability to depart from its nature to be able to be held accountable by life and then learn the lesson. It can't. So, but human beings, we have an immense comparatively amount of free will and we can depart from our nature quite a lot. Quite a lot. And, you know, the obvious question is, well, why is that? Why, why do human beings have the ability to depart from our nature so dramatically, so deeply, and live obviously out of harmony with nature the way we do compared to every other being on the planet? Why would that be? Well, of course, it's impossible to know absolutely. But the way it looks to me is, that's precisely a setup so that we can learn to return to it because it's a magical, healing, meaningful thing for a human being to return, to, to be in the process of, and then to return to their own true nature, their own authenticity. So human beings have the blessing and the curse to be able to depart from our true nature using free will only to find that actually 
there's a natural order of things that we're supposed to abide abide by that is actually better for everyone. Sort of a random note. Do you guys know about Benford's Law? Uh, I'm posting it on Slack sometime soon. So I just learned about this. This thing called Benford's Law that basically says for any group of seemingly random numbers, you know, all of the different numbers on someone's tax return or on all the tax returns in the country or all of the uh, NFL statistics for the last year or the home prices for uh, a given area for the last five years, you take a big group of numbers and you'd expect that the initial digits, one through nine or zero through nine, those are the uh, well, no, digit can't start with zero. So one through nine has to start one through nine. You'd expect that those would be evenly distributed, wouldn't you? 11% a piece. Turns out that's not how it works. How it works is 30% of those numbers will start with one, 17% will start with two, 12.5% will start with three. And they make this nice curve down to nine being the least likely number for it to begin with. And this is so universally observable, and nobody knows why. This is so universally observable that the uh, IRS in the States will not admit to using it to evaluate tax returns, but there's a lot of suspicion that they do. And in Europe, tax agencies apparently do use it. Uh, and you can experiment, it's been experimented with, it's been looked at. It's, I've never heard of it before this week. A friend of mine told me about this uh, show on Netflix that talks about it all. I'll post the link. But it's quite shocking when you look at it and you think like, wow, something as, you know, we're talking about like, People's tax returns and median home prices and sports statistics, like this is very random human created stuff. How is it that it's falling into this order? It challenges the sense of free will, doesn't it? It's quite confronting to think like, well, whatever you try to do, Whatever you humans try to do, the numbers you generate are going to fall into this pattern every time. So it speaks to me in that there's a there's an invisible sense of order, organization, truth that is always there. It's sort of like you can paint whatever colors you want on the canvas, but it never changes the, the color of the canvas. You know, it's still, the canvas still is what it is. You can do whatever you want on top of it, but there's this underlying thing that is prior to everything we think and do and say and mean and intend and something unalterable. And that leads me back to <clears throat> what is spirituality? So from the ego's perspective, which is how most people relate to spirituality, they relate to it. Uh, I heard Ajahn once 
talk about his own book called The End of Your World. And he made a joke and said, it's not a very, um, you know, appealing title. And people laughed in the audience. And they said, if I, he said, it's not a title that, uh, that's would sell a lot of books. And everybody laughed. And, and he said, if I wanted to sell a lot of books, I would write a book called what, what consciousness can do for you. And I, I really stuck with me because that's exactly how the ego relates to spirituality. It relates to it as what this infinite, immense, omnipresent power, what, depending on the spirituality and the religion or whatever, it can have different features, but it's something far bigger than you are every time, right? By definition, a spirituality or religion, it's about something that's far bigger, so big you can't even conceive of what it is. And yet somehow we manage to relate to it as, well, what can it do for me? Which is absurd. <clears throat> Completely misses the mark, you know? It's like saying, okay, well, there's this pattern of uh, Benford's law with about how, you know, ones 30% of the time, twos 17% of the time, and so on. It's like being, it's like saying, okay, well, how do we change? This seems to be an immutable law in the universe, but how do we change it? You'd be like, what? What? How do we make rocks, you know, taste like cheese and, how do we take genes from tomatoes and no, no, what is it? They take genes from fish and put them in tomatoes to make them redder or ripen faster or whatever. But that's actually what we do, right? We look at nature, this amazing, improbable thing. And we go, how do we mess with it to improve our own individual experience? And it's a fine line because sometimes that leads to good outcomes like the hybridization of <clears throat> apples, which used to be practically inedible. And now we have, you know, dozens and dozens of amazing different varieties of apples that we can appreciate and grow and doesn't seem to be do doing much damage. But other times we do things like, oh, I don't know what, you know, extract a whole bunch of oil out of the bottom of the ocean and then spill millions and millions and millions of gallons of it which obviously is not so good. So the, the human ego has real challenges discerning between what is good for it. It's really a, a simple way of summing it up because we all think we know what's good for us. But if you just scratch the surface a little bit, you find that actually we don't. We really don't know what's good for us. But the pursuit of happiness, of course, is right there. Because the pursuit of happiness includes a priori the assumption that you know what makes you happy, right? You know what makes you happy, therefore you have the right to pursue that. It assumes you know in advance what's going to make you happy, but all you got to do is follow a thousand people around and see what they're doing to try to make themselves happy. And you can usually see quite clearly with just a little bit of training and you know how to look, you can see that they're actually making themselves miserable. And every once in a while they realize it.
So spirituality is one of those things where we think we know what it is and we think it's for us. And when we orient toward it that way, we stay miserable. And we, we don't get to actually participate in what spirituality is actually about. Now, this is not to say that spirituality is about completely setting aside human needs. I'm not saying that. Because it's somewhere in between. Because when a human being gets interested in spirituality, it has to be a self-interest, right? That's the inviolable rule of self-interest. They're interested in spirituality for whatever reason they're interested in. The most common reason is to alleviate suffering. Well, that's a self-interest. But then I think what happens is there's, in, in anyone's spiritual path, it certainly depends on the person, but in general, there's a, there's a place, there's a sort of um, a tipping point where you will reach a limit You will reach a limit relating to spirituality as being something for you. I wouldn't say it's, it's definitely not all for you, but it's definitely not all for spirit either. There's a dance there. There's an intermingling of needs. Now, most people will err too far on the side of trying to get their own needs met in spirituality. But deeply spiritual people will often make the other mistake and they go too far to the other side. And then they sell out on their own humanity and make it all about serving spirit. To which I would tie back the, one of the original premises of this talk, which is, okay, if you're going to set aside all of your needs and serve spirits, in order to do that, you have to exclude yourself from that system, which you cannot do by definition. You cannot set aside all of your needs and only serve spirit because your needs are a subset of spirit. You see, that's like having a collection of 10 numbers in a set, one through zero through 10, let's say. And then the number three says, okay, I'm going to serve all of these numbers, but not myself. Well, you're in the set. You can't get out of the set. You can't get out of God and serve God. Because everything is God and nothing is not God. So that's the less common error. error, Is pouring oneself too much into spirituality and losing the individual needs. And that's what happens in when people become monks and nuns, typically. And which is not to say there's anything wrong with doing that or with pursuing the path of using spirituality to meet your own uh, egoistic needs. There's nothing wrong with either of those things, just like there would be nothing wrong with a squirrel trying to subsist on blue raspberry slurpees. Because in the end, it's not the natural order of things, as it seems to me, but we do things that are not, not in the natural order of things all the time, and we learn, and that's how we learn. As the cliche goes, mistakes are a part of learning. 
So there's nothing wrong with it. And we, we will make many mistakes, which are really not mistakes. We'll experiment a lot and explore on both sides of that continuum, inhabiting our needs personally too much, inhabiting our needs not enough. And it's through the feedback that we get from people and from life that we find that middle way that is actually the true nature of things. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the clear and open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that Clear and Open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. If you want to help the show grow, I'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review on iTunes. All you have to do is open the Apple Podcasts app, view the full description of the episode, and click the link to leave a rating and review. Or you can go to clearandopen.com slash review, and it will bring you to the right place. If you're looking for more support on your journey, head over to clearandopen.com for even more tools, articles, and free resources. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.